So today was one of those days where I had the radio on the whole time. And I was listening to live radio as it happens. I tend to be, you know, I'll, I'll have a little confession here that uh, may not be may not be kosher as a professional radio broadcaster, but I tend to be more of a podcast listener rather than than a live listener. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> Which, by the way, you can check out the podcast of all our programming here at your iHeartRadio app, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. And uh, that's what I was doing today. I was listening to iHeartRadio live all day today because I wanted to hear what people had to say. I wanted to hear the professional, big-time broadcaster, conservative talk radio reaction to this anonymous op-ed that appeared attributed to a senior Trump administration official in the New York Times yesterday and has caused quite the uproar and was the number one topic on every show that I listened to today, including Justice and Drew, the whole lineup here on the sh- on the station. Justice and Drew, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh uh, had a, a guest host who talked about it pretty much the whole time. Sean Hannity went after it hard and heavy through his show and massively entertaining and interesting to to get all of these different perspectives and to, to get insight from the various guests that all of these folks had on. And yet, in spite of all of that, I was fascinated by the fact that nobody really seemed to have the same take that we did last night regarding the what I regard to be the most likely motivation for both the New York Times and whoever the author of this piece is, and that is to sow disruption and confusion and dysfunction within the White House. I, I increasingly, the more I've reflected upon it, that occurs to me is the only possible rational explanation, you know, to this point, you know, maybe some new information will present itself, but to this point, that seems to me to be the, the only rational explanation or rational motive for why both the New York times and the author of this piece would do this, would post something anonymously in an unprecedented manner that lacks real detail, lacks a real substantial revelation. I mean, the, this op-ed exists more or less for its own sake. Like it doesn't deliver anything of substance within it. It's, it's more of the fact that it exists. That is the news rather than the content of anything that it has to say. And that should be a huge red flag. You know, when you, when somebody puts, when somebody publishes something that doesn't actually contain anything of inherent value, you should ask yourself why. What is the purpose of this? And uh, we're going to get into that here tonight on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Again, you can listen to us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to contribute to the program if you feel so inclined this evening. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. So the, there was a theory that was put out by a Twitter user by the name of Treason Hat. Uh, actually, it's, it's at Pope Hat is, is the actual handle. 
And this is basically the same theory that we had last night. He said, I agree with the assessment that the anonymous op-ed is likely to make things worse rather than better. And and this is in reference to, I believe it was David Fromm had a piece uh, at, at some publication. We'll, we'll look it up for you. Where he articulated that this makes things significantly worse for people who are afraid of Donald Trump, for it, people who are afraid of what Trump is doing. It was The Atlantic. The Atlantic, thank you. David Fromm writing at The Atlantic had this piece where he said, this is going to make things worse rather than better. Like if if you genuinely think that Donald Trump is a threat because he's incompetent or he's amoral or whatever it is that he's accused of being, the things that he was accused of being within this op-ed, if that's really your position, then writing an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times may be the worst possible thing you could have done in order to inflame all of those negative characteristics. And so a Pope Pat on Twitter here is saying he agrees with that assessment. It's likely to make things worse rather than better. And then his question is, could it be designed to make things much worse to provoke a crisis? In other words, is the aim not to convince, but to provoke Trump until he becomes actionably unhinged? Because I don't think a public defection by a team member would do it, and an anonymous op-ed doesn't do it. But maybe it's designed to provoke further freakouts and excesses that will themselves be enough to weapon, weaponize Trump being Trump. And uh, a number of folks chime in with additional thoughts to that uh, along similar lines. And uh, it's that's basically our take on, was our take on the program last night, is that the the strategic kind of 3d chess poker player strategy analysis of this is that the purpose in publishing it is to troll trump and to provoke a response much like the one we've gotten from him in the past 24 hours and to and to create a scenario whereby the white house cannot function i mean think about what it must be like right now to be Donald Trump or to be anybody in his orbit, to be working in the White House, to be working in the cabinet, to be working on staff, it's got to be impossible to, to be able to do your job. Because what the, the question on everybody's mind is, who is this? Who's the traitor? Who's the saboteur? Who's the person who we can't trust? Who's the person who's going in the New York Times publishing an anonymous op-ed? And that's the question that's going to be on everyone's mind in every meeting, in every room from here on out until the question is answered or until you just get rid of all the suspects, which would require firing everybody. And, and, And I don't know how you practically accomplish that. And so what this has done is it's sowed seeds of uncertainty and it's created a uh, untenable environment, untenable working environment within the White House that is going to frustrate Trump's agenda going forward. It's a masterful tactical stroke uh, by enemies of Donald Trump that re- you really got to kind of tip your hat to in terms of the genius of it, because the, it 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 manages to accomplish what otherwise could not be accomplished. It manages to 
put a a block in the capacity of Trump, of his administration, to function in a way that nothing else has. The Mueller investigation hasn't done this. The the indictments of several people associated with Trump and Trump's orbit, orbit hasn't done this. The guilty plea by Michael Cohen hasn't done this. The conviction of Paul Manafort hasn't done this. The The Russia narrative, the narrative of Russian collusion, you know, all the things that have popped up over the past couple of years have failed to stop Donald Trump. This could. This could functionally stop him. Not by impeaching him, not by getting him out of office, not by getting him to change, but by, in a kind of jujitsu psychological fashion, leveraging his own weaknesses against him, his suspicion, his paranoia, his ego, in such a way that he can't get anything done because he literally distrusts everyone in his orbit. It's really kind of insidious. And it's it's interesting to me that that doesn't seem to be the focus of most people's analysis. The focus of most people's analysis seems to be, you know, the who, what, where, who is it? Let's identify them. Let's out them. You know, let, let's hold the, the New York Times responsible for their journalistic malfeasance, you know, all of which are worthy points or worthy topics in their own right, but to my mind are beside the larger point here in terms of what the actual effect of this moving forward is going to be. Speaking of the journalistic malfeasance of various actors within the mainstream media, there was a piece put out in Politico today that caught my eye. It was written by Mike McCurry, who apparently... As a former press secretary under the Clinton administration. I'm a, a bit too young to recall this guy. I don't remember Mike McCurry press conferences. But he put out a piece in response to or in the wake of the Woodward, the Bob Woodward book that's coming out. And uh, also, of course, in the wake of this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. And he makes the case that the press needs to change their behavior. He says, forget the Woodward book. Here's what would really drive Trump nuts. Just in time for the end of Beach Leisure after Labor Day, another inside account of life in the White House uh, by celebrated Bob Woodward is in the works. The book isn't even officially out yet, and already the gnashing and snarling are erupting as various top administration officials claim never to have said words attributed to them by the Pulitzer Prize winning author, including the president who's slamming Woodward's fear as a bad book, same as it ever was. Woodward is a smart and clever writer, Mike McCurry writes, and his books, he's written nearly two dozen of them, often shed light on how the modern presidency works and sometimes doesn't. He captures scenes and conversations that have real impact on how we understand a precious institution, the presidency, that are always worthy of study and explanation. No one should mistake his work, however, for journalism or history. It will take many years for experts in those disciplines to unravel what really has happened in this odd and uniquely dysfunctional White House. Woodward provides an immediate alternative. He interrogates various actors, sometimes giving them the cloak of anonymity, and then weaves together his best approximation of how real events may have unfolded. His technique includes providing quotation marks around conversations where he was not present and where the participants presumably offer their best recollection of how unrecorded conversations unfolded. 
here's an exercise to try. Can you remember exact quotes from that heated office meeting you had a couple months ago about next year's budget? How sure are you that you got them exactly right? And that's the scenario we're dealing with here. Now, this process that Mike Murray describes, that Bob Woodward uh, exercised in, in the writing of his book, may sound familiar because it's very similar to the process utilized by the author of the last inside the Trump White House book, The Fire and Fury one, it, which was, I believe it was Michael Wolf was the name of the guy who wrote that. It sounds vaguely familiar. Who utilized very much the same technique of approximating what happened, approximating quotes, approximating events in a kind of, you know, he, he goes on, Mike McMurray goes on to describe this as historical fiction and a sort of historical fiction account. Now, here's, here's my immediate observation of this. If the Woodward book is described or can be accurately described as historical fiction and not journalism and not hard history and, and does not provide actual quotes recorded from actual people who were actually there, then of what value is it exactly? Why is it being reported on as if it's newsworthy when it doesn't qualify in Mike McMurray's judgment, as either journalism or history. Why is this a thing? Why is this a focus? And he goes on in this piece to advocate for a different approach to covering the White House. He talks about how uh, he would like to see Trump denied the oxygen he wants and needs, which is daily coverage. He says, take him off the air. Tell all those very talented journalists at the White House to go out and cover what this administration is really doing. Daily coverage at the Agriculture Department or the Department of Homeland Security. Real reports from the Environmental Protection Agency on the front page with no Trump in the headline. He says, I'm as eager to scoop up every morsel of palace intrigue from inside this crazy town White House as everyone else, but there's a better way for the press to win this war. They need to get the people on their side. They need to demonstrate that their first interest is the public's right to know and that they are willing to fight back. This will be contrary to every instinct that journalists have in normal times, but these are not them. The rules of engagement need to change. Now, unwittingly, Mike McMurray here is confirming the fake news narrative. Is he not? He's saying that journalists' instinct is to not cover the news. He's saying that journalists' instinct is to not go to the Agriculture Department or the Department of Homeland Security or the Environmental Protection Agency and actually report on what's actually happening from real sources in real time with real context, that their instincts are to go for the salacious palace intrigue and the clickbait. That's exactly what Donald Trump has been telling us. For the past two, three, four years, the fake news media narrative has been verified by one of its champions, Mike McMurray, former press secretary under the Clinton administration. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. brought up that Twitter thread from Popat. I'll go ahead and retweet it when I get an opportunity here. One of the respondents in that thread is David French, who writes over at National Review. And during the break, I tripped upon an open letter that he has authored at National Review to the anonymous senior Trump administration official 
who penned this op-ed in the New York Times. And I've been reading through it here, and I want to share it with you because it's, it's pretty on point in terms of what it observes and what it prescribes. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us this evening. David French writes, Dear Anonymous, This isn't normal Washington politics anymore. It's not a game. Your instantly infamous New York Times op-ed has painted us a picture of your character, and it's not pretty. Let's put this as bluntly as possible. If you're actively defying the president to pursue your own preferred policies, you're subverting an American presidential election. If you're withholding from the American people actual hard evidence of presidential unfitness, then you're placing your own career before your country. If you're lying or badly exaggerating the facts for the thrill of constant media contact or the approval of your peers, then you're just despicable. In Bob Woodward's new book and your Times piece, Americans now face claims that the president's staff often decides his orders are so outlandish that they must be ignored. We face claims that members of his own administration have sought to thwart his will in part by literally taking documents off his desk and hoping he doesn't notice. And now there's even a claim that Trump's behavior was so outlandish and unstable that, quote, there were early whispers within the cabinet of invoking the 25th Amendment, unquote. Allegations don't get much more explosive than that. So here's what you have to do. You have to identify yourself. You have to state the basis of your claims, name the cabinet members who whispered about removing the president, and state the reasons for their alarm. If what you say is true, the American people need to know. You need to tell them, and you need to do it not in a television interview or the pages of the Times, but in Congress, under oath, in front of the nation. Yes, this will be hard, but if you truly believe the president is unfit, basic patriotism demands nothing less. There's a lot of talk about the kind of behavior that's priced in with Trump. Aside from the cultists, millions of voters cast their ballots knowing that he was a flawed man. They knew and still know that he's cheated on his wife. They wished and still wish that he wouldn't rage on Twitter, that he showed more self-discipline, and that he had more integrity. But they preferred him to Hillary Clinton, another corrupt candidate. But there's something else that the voters have priced in, too. They expect that Trump will face stiff resistance from the Republican establishment and that the permanent class of civil servants, the deep state we hear so much about, will loathe and seek to undermine him. So when you run to the Times or to the Post to make anonymous claims, Trump supporters quite fairly question your motives. If the crisis is so bad and your motives are so pure, why not go on the record? And uh, he goes on there at uh, National Review. That's David French. Recommend checking out the rest of it. And, you know, the, again, this jives with the, the question that seems to be on everybody's mind is why do this? If, if the claims are true, then why not come forward? And again, the answer that I tend toward is that the purpose of this op-ed was not actually to provide us with any sort of substantive information. That wasn't the point. The point of it seems very clearly to sow discord and dysfunction within the White House so that Donald Trump can't get anything done. Let's talk to Mike in Blaine. Welcome to the program. Um, yeah, hi. Um, I, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, to the point to where I don't even think there is a insider in the White House that's done this. 
personally. Uh, the the so-called fourth estate is more like the fifth column in this country. Uh, we've seen it, you know, through the campaign, the way they colluded with uh, Hillary and stuff. I think this is totally uh, fabricated by a gentleman who, who's, you know, put the name on the piece and and uh, somebody at the DNC, because let's face it, they're not able to stop Trump. All right. I mean, we have a booming economy. We have more jobs now than people uh, to work them. Uh, the wall is getting built. They're not telling us that, but it's actually starting to get built. Things are actually the things he promised the American people who voted for him that he was going to get done. He's getting done and they can't stop him. So they got to come up. I mean, you just. Well, and that's that's the that's the brilliance here. I appreciate your thoughts, Mike. That's the brilliance here is that they can't stop him, but he can stop him. Donald Trump may be the only force capable of stopping Donald Trump. And it it seems to me that this op-ed posted anonymously in the New York Times is is designed strategically, tactically and brilliantly to affect precisely that, to get him to self-implode, to get him to self-destruct by appealing to the evident aspects of his psychological makeup in order to trigger reactions that will keep him from being able to accomplish his agenda moving forward and potentially undermine the midterm elections and his 2020 prospects. 651-989-5855. We'll take your calls when we return Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. Hashtag TCNT out the uh, Twitter thread and the National Review piece by David French that we've been discussing the past couple of segments all related to the anonymous op-ed published in the New York Times yesterday from a senior administration official within the Trump administration. And uh, we are continuing to take your calls on the subject. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Mike in St. Paul. Thanks for holding. Hi, good evening, Walter. Evening. Say, um, with all the attention, like you said, that the uh, radio hosts today um, gave to the matter, I'm, I'm perplexed as to why, with um, as evil as as you have mentioned, that the leftists can be and. No doubt the New York Times is a leftist publication. Why, why can't anybody see this for what this is? This is exactly what you've spelled out. It's a head fake. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't believe uh, that anybody in a high position uh, would actually write this if their goal is to continue to be subversive right. and work within it. Because yeah. if, 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 if there is a true writer, mm-hmm. they'll figure it out. I, I just believe it's just complete fabrication, and it's working exactly for those exact reasons that you've spelled out. It's a it's it's a brainworm. Get in his head and work this way. Yeah. But yeah. Why, why why hasn't nobody caught on that 
there's probably no writer but the editor of the New York Times. Well, I, I think there's, to my, to my mind, there's two potential explanations, one of which is relatively innocent and the other of which is less so. The innocent potential explanation is that it just simply hasn't occurred to people, that, that people are looking at it at face value and they're, they're giving it more credit than it deserves and assuming that there's more of a there there than there actually is. And that there is some author and that there is some explanation. There's more to the story and that maybe we're going to find out more. And there, and there, the other side of it, the less innocent possibility that unfortunately I think is more likely is that to the extent that people perceive what we've been talking about here tonight and what you, you are outlining to the extent that they perceive it, that's not a particularly sexy narrative, right? Like actually trying to understand what's happening beneath the surface and engaging your brain in order to go a couple of layers deep to, to understand the power dynamics that are in play that takes work and it doesn't re necessarily result in getting retweeted or getting clicks. Right. I Where, think he should have just laughed. I'm disappointed. He didn't just completely laugh. <laughs> you talking about Trump? Yes. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt. Look, Trump, Trump is, in some ways, his own worst enemy in terms of, you know, if he just, if he took, if he just adopted the, the same advice that I give to my little kids, which is hold your breath for 10 seconds before you speak, before you act, just give it a minute, calm down and think about what's happening. Ask the questions that we're asking here tonight, which is why would somebody do this? What, what's the most likely reason, you know, he he's perceptive enough to know that he has enemies, but he doesn't seem to really factor in how they work or ask himself what their motivations are and how they would most likely go about trying to affect them. I appreciate your call, Mike. Let's talk to Lorraine in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Uh, it's just a great program listening to you. Um, I, I'm, I guess I need to talk to someone. I, I'm so frustrated with all this. I, it was it was my vote. I I voted this man in. I would never think of subverting Obama. Did I like it? No. I just didn't watch him on TV and and went about my own business. But I I didn't subvert anything. I this is so outrageous and it goes on day after day after day. Mm. I I. I I just am so frustrated by this. Yeah, it's, it, I appreciate, and I, I understand how you feel, and it, you have every right and reason to feel that way, Lorraine. Appreciate your call. One of the things that this whole episode demonstrates, to my mind, is the outside, and you can blame this on the current and past sessions of Congress, our elected legislators, our elected representatives and past administrations and presidents. We have abdicated way too much of our legislative and executive authority. And when I say we, I'm talking about the federal government, those people who we have elected in order to go serve us in Washington, D.C. They have abdicated way too much of their authority to the bureaucracy. And it's, be, it's because the, the deep state is a creature of Congress. A, in, an act of Congress, or more accurately, several acts of Congress, created this Frankenstein monster known as the deep state. 
And it can be as easily dismantled. It can be as easily slain. Congress can pick up their proverbial torches and pitchforks, and they can put an end to this creature, to this monster, to this beast. The question is, do they have the will? I mean, this is what Trump ran on, right? He ran on draining the swamp. He ran on subverting the establishment. He ran on making profound, meaningful change to the way things are done in Washington. This should be the catalyst for that. It should be, look, we can't have a scenario whereby you have people in positions of power who are unelected, who are actively working to subvert the agenda of people who were elected. Because at that point, and this this is the question I would have for Democrats, you know, because but we all need to take our partisan hats off to some degree when we consider this. My question for Democrats would be, you're always talking about democracy, and we're going to get into this later in the program, the, the Democrats' democracy problem. You're always talking about the value of democracy and the importance of doing what the people want and listening to the people and responding to electoral mandates and to, to, to polls and to where people want to go, where people want to steer the country. Isn't it problematic to the notion of democracy that you have an entrenched institutional bureaucracy that is run by people who were not elected and who cannot be voted out of their jobs, who will persist and remain regardless of what happens in November of this year or in November of 2020. Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez even said it. She said these people were appointed. Right. Now, we so there should be a bipartisan coalition. There should be broad-based agreement that the deep state needs to die, that the swamp needs to be drained, that the bureaucracy needs to go away, that government needs to shrink in a major and significant way, that the representation that we elect, you know, and it's going to be another thing that we, we get into here later in the program, we have a representation problem in the United States right now at multiple levels, at the state level and the federal level for sure. A, a representation problem whereby people are not being represented in these institutions. And they're not being represented for, for a couple of reasons. One is the, the mechanisms of party politics, particularly in the context of gerrymandered legislative and congressional districts. That's one reason, and we're going to get into that later in the program. But the second reason is this. It's the administrative state or the deep state, however you want to refer to it. It's the abdication of power at both the federal and the state level. You know, Jim Newberger, candidate for U.S. Senate, has talked about this. In his experience in the House of Representatives here in the state of Minnesota working in St. Paul, his number one antagonist has been state agencies. Now, where, where did they come from? State agencies don't just pop out of the ground, right? They're not gremlins. They're not goblins, right? Like, they, they don't come from the ether. They are creatures of the legislature. Yeah, but the legislatures don't just pop out of anywhere either. Well, and, and that's a solid point. There needs to be a political will, and it starts right here, right now with us, to make it a priority that we're not going to put up with this lack of representation any longer. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I wonder if I can get Neil Lynch to come in here on less than 24 hours notice for one of our, our Friday romps. It's been quite a while. 
I uh, I imagine now that the school year started, I don't know if that's going to make it easier or harder for him to come in. I know he likes to to uh, hang out at those Friday night football games. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, supposedly from a senior Trump administration official, uh, amongst other things. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Do you have you ever, from time to time, do you ever visit the Breitbart site and read any of the articles there? You know, not as often as you might think. Every once in a while, I trip upon something from them, but it's not a go-to source for me. There was an interesting article that came out over the weekend. It was by an author. They have their. Uh, they, he just goes by the name Virgil. Mm-hmm. The last thing, and he was commenting on the McCain funeral. And I guess the snubbing of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And he was basically kind of pointing out how this globalist era, and he was comparing it to the monarchies in the early part of the 1900s. I think it was, it might have been Prince Edward or one of the royalty had d- died. But essentially, where the establishment, the globalist, the swamp, the deep state, that Maybe their time has passed, and along here comes this guy named Trump, and he's more about, what, what did he use? What was the term he used? The forgotten man or woman. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, well, at least in my observation, it seems like Trump's upsetting their apple cart, and they just they want to usurp the, I guess, the voting and our system of government here that, hey, we were doing just fine before you came along. We had all our sweet deals cut. We had, we, you know, we had our wars going. Um, all these things were playing into their favor. And now you start to see somebody that is speaking up and standing up and believes in representing the people that voted for him. And I, the, the other thing, I've heard this term mentioned, that Glenn Beck used to talk about this a lot, and I, I don't know how attuned he was to this, but there's almost like a civil war component to all of this, where you have this line drawn where, you know, the people, they want to support the president, and they voted for him, but there's this whole other group that's just trying to subvert what he's doing. I couldn't imagine what this would be like if this op-ed occurred under the Obama administration. And the outrage, I mean, they were, that person would be crucified, whoever wrote that. The media just gave, in my view, gave Obama a free pass, and all the cards seem to be stacked against Trump and what he wants to do. But at the core of it is what's going to happen when the people that voted for him feel like their vote was just taken away and slighted, just stolen from them effectively? I don't. That's a great question. I don't think that a lot of Trump's critics, and you know, it's it's interesting to speak of Trump's critics in the third person because I I have been a Trump critic, but I don't I don't think that most of Trump's critics really stop to think about that. They really really stop to think about the the intent of the voter in casting their ballot for Donald Trump and their expectation and how they would react to impeachment or to some extra 
constitutional process of trying to prematurely end the Trump presidency or even something like this where, you know, this is an impeachment. This isn't a an effort to end the presidency, but it's certainly a potentially very effective effort to frustrate its capacity to be productive moving forward. And, you know, the effect that that has on the the sense of, you know, I, I think what you're getting after is the sense of confidence that that people have in their government actually representing them and it that's the the lack of such confidence is what gave us Donald Trump exactly and the the reaction to to him and the uh, the desire and effort to continually undermine him is only pouring gasoline on the fire of that lack of confidence and what are the long-term consequences to undermining that confidence in the system, it ain't good. Well, let me pose this where I may have mentioned this, and you may have talked about it at some point. You've heard of the Frankfurt School. Mm-hmm. And where there's a group of people that just, they don't seem to like America or the idea of America. So they're not necessarily declaring war, but it seems like gradually over time, these people have woven their way into the government, and slowly and slowly this cancer keeps growing. And There's... after a while, people who believe in the country and the idea of America start to say, you know what happened? We had, we had a process. I mean, if you didn't like the country, I mean, if you were that, uh, why not just go to war then? I mean, at a certain point, if you're so against the idea of the country, you know, I mean, well, because I, I, I look, I, I think they are. I think this is war. This is war by different means. This, this is a way of conducting a an an operation, an effort to end America, as you characterize it without actually firing a shot and it's it's been very effective and it's been ongoing for you know north of 100 years the infiltration into major institutions by people with a a what they call progressive but what we all know to be uh, a socialist or as you and others have described it globalist agenda and they they've sunk their teeth into the system they've grown their roots deep into the the mechanisms of the establishment i appreciate your call mike as always and you know this this notion of the deep state or the swamp or whatever metaphor you want to conjure in order to describe it there's a truth to that that i think those who are within the deep state within the establishment within uh this this administrative state they don't comprehend the extent to which they have an arrogance and a presumption about the way things ought to be, which is completely out of sync with the average man and woman on the street. And that tension is going to have to be resolved. It is going to have to be reconciled at some point, And somebody in this contest is going to lose. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. bit of why things are the way they are we spent the first hour of the program responding and analyzing the anonymous op-ed in the new york times 
from a senior Trump administration official and kind of breaking down our theory as to why this was published, why the New York Times took the unprecedented and peculiar step and made the peculiar choice of publishing an anonymous op-ed and presuming that there actually is an author why they would choose to engage in this particular exercise. And that's led us to a broader conversation about the deep state and the conflict between uh, those who are in institutional power, bureaucrats, uh, appointed people, hired people, staff, you know, the, the folks who persist, the folks who remain regardless of elections. You know, and I think this is something that we as voters and as observers from the outside looking in, something we very commonly overlook and forget that elections it's true elections do have consequences there's no doubt about it elections do most definitely have meaningful and profound consequences but they don't have that big of consequences they don't they don't change the big things that really need to be changed because as your congressman or your senator or your president or whoever, your state representative, as they come and they go, as they get elected and voted out, as majorities change and leadership changes and the, the constitution of districts shifts and waxes and wanes, the one thing that remains eternal, like a cockroach after a, a nuclear apocalypse, is the bureaucracy. That remains intact. And that is is a big source of the problem, of our problem. That is the one definition of the deep state. That's one definition of the swamp. And so how do we find ourselves in this position where we can't meaningfully get after the real problems? And there's this sense that emerges from it wherein people feel like they're not being represented, like they don't have a voice, like they are the forgotten man or the forgotten woman are they truly forgotten or are they just ignored i would submit to you that they're ignored and they're ignored for a particular reason we're going to get into it here on closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 11 30 fm streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and your iheart radio app we're here 9 to 11 weeknights it's great having you with us you can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iheart radio app our channel will pop up for you. You can also join the program, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. So a couple of stories to kind of ramp up to the point that I want to make here. So stick with me because it's going to seem unrelated, but it's really not. From the Boston Herald, there's this gal, Ayanna Presley, who has prevailed in yet another Democratic primary and I guess she's one of these progressive democratic socialist types along the lines of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she's being described as potentially, you know, one of the new up and coming stars within the Democratic Party. They reported with the Boston Herald. Ayanna Presley's historic victory over a 10 term incumbent in the 7th Congressional District primary Tuesday night could vault her as the next national champion of the progressive movement, experts say. Uh, a campaign and elections expert and professor at the University of Buffalo says that because Presley has a strong base and has gotten a lot of media attention, similar to Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 44-year-old city councilor could gain a strong national presence. 
I can see this being something that has reverberation nationwide. Uh, the gentleman said in the case of Ocasio-Cortez, she had a lot of support behind her. And it's hard to tell how much was driven by media narrative or whether these are just local dynamics. But these wins for much younger, less moderate candidates seems to suggest that the Democratic base is motivated. And, you know, for our purposes here tonight, the emphasis I would put is on less moderate, less moderate candidates. I mean, that's that's pretty much beyond dispute. Like whether you're a Republican, Democrat, however you describe yourself along the political spectrum, I think we can all agree that the people who are prevailing in these primaries are less moderate than those who they are overthrowing. Certainly these multiple-term established people who have been in the party for a long time. Tim Mallory, continuing at the Boston Herald, the assistant director of the Quinnipiac University poll, added that primary victories from Presley and Ocasio-Cortez suggest early on that it is the year of progressives in those states. It's likely that most Americans don't know Presley right now, Malloy said, but the fact that she's set to be the first African-American congresswoman from Massachusetts will have resonance once people are aware of that. Presley, who knocked off incumbent Michael Capriano, shared the same stances as her opponent on many issues. Their biggest disagreement was related to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Presley supports abolishing ICE, while Capriano did not. So that that has now become a litmus test issue in Democratic primaries, is your desire, your willingness to abolish ICE is apparently a, if not already an official part of their platform, certainly something that unofficially you must be. You must be for getting rid of immigration and custom enforcement. Douglas Rivers, a professor of political science at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, says the Democratic Party is in a long-term shift to the left, much like Republicans had a long-term shift to the right. They voted for a progressive that's going to speak louder, said Rivers. We're in an age where people don't want to be moderate on both sides. They want conflict, not compromise. Rivers doesn't think Presley's primary victory will have much of a national impact, nothing that primaries are much better placed for left-wing candidates, and that Presley and Ocasio-Cortez won safe Democratic seats. And that's the other point I want to highlight here, safe Democratic seats. He said, as it stands right now, Democrats have a slight edge to carry the house so you know this notion of one the prevailing victors in democratic primaries are tending to be less moderate more quote progressive unquote more democratic socialist more extreme number one and number two that they're tending to prevail in safe democratic seats meaning that there isn't much of a chance of the republican no matter who they are being able to defeat them no matter how radical they are. Well, the watch is officially on Ilan Omar now. Yeah, right, exactly. Which leads us into our next piece from the Star Tribune. The task of drawing new boundaries for thousands of federal and state legislative districts is still about three years away, yet the political battle over redistricting already is playing out in this year's midterm elections. North Carolina's congressional elections were thrown into uh, into a week of uncertainty when a federal judiciary panel raised the possibility that it would order new districts before the fall elections to correct what it had ruled was unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering. It opted against doing that on Tuesday, conceding there was not enough time. In Colorado, Michigan, Missouri, and Utah, campaigns are underway for November ballot initiatives that would change the redistricting process 
so it's less partisan and creates more competitive districts. National Democratic and Republican groups are pouring millions of dollars into state races seeking to ensure they have office holders in position to influence the next round of redistricting. The results from the 2020 census are to be delivered to states in spring of 2021, triggering a mandatory once-a-decade redistricting for U.S. House and state legislative seats to account for population changes. How those districts get drawn can help determine which party controls those chambers for years to come. And the, the importance of this cannot be overstated in terms of the, the long-term effect. The party that prevails in the several states in terms of legislative control and winning the, the governor's mansion in the several states, the party that prevails in 2020 is going to get to draw these maps. And by drawing those maps in their favor, they can lock down majorities, both legislatively within the several states and potentially in the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. for the next decade, for the next 10 years. And indeed, the Republicans came out on top with this in 2010. Because what happened in 2010? You know, I'll tell you, because I was, I was there and I was a part of it. The Tea Party. The Tea Party wave of 2010 shaped redistricting for these past 10 years. And the effect of that has been that Republicans retained control of the House throughout Obama's administration and were therefore able to counter him, to counterbalance him throughout that entire time. And they also are in a position where it's going to be very difficult to defeat them and take the House this year in spite of the fact that there are some indications that Democrats have some wind at their back. It's all about who draws the maps, which raises the question of, are we really being represented? You know, we just talked, we talked with Mike in Farmington, he called in, and talked about the sense of that people have that they're not being represented, that they're not being listened to, this notion that Trump has appealed to of the forgotten man and the forgotten woman. How is it that you come to be forgotten? Well, I think forgotten is the wrong word. I think the accurate word is ignored. You're ignored because you quite literally do not matter. If, if you're a voter in one of these safe districts, if you're, for, look, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I'll use my district as an example. If you're a Democratic voter in the 6th Congressional District here in Minnesota, forget about it. Like, you, you don't have somebody who is going to represent your point of view because it's a safe Republican district. Well, if you look at kind of the, for, the cross-section of the forgotten man population of Trump voters, they're really just average people. They go to work. They have a family at home and they don't talk politics at the dinner table. Like, for example, my hometown, which I know is very conservative and no doubt voted for Trump heavily. Um, politics was never something we discussed at the dinner table. I didn't realize that my parents were conservative until one time this guy knocking on doors running for, you know, some state house seat, uh, left his pamphlet and my dad was like, Oh, was he a Democrat? I was like, yeah. Did he tell him to go away? And that one, that's when it clicked like, Oh, my, my parents are conservative. And, um, so it's not that they're not represented or it's not that they don't have a voice because they do. It's just that 
they're not useful in furthering the political agenda because they they don't focus on that. They're they're focused on living their lives and working their jobs and loving their families. They're not they don't live in this future shock world of constantly in hysteria over what is going on in Washington D.C. when you're in small town America. So there what I, what I'm getting after is there is a way hypothetically there's a way to affect that dynamic wherein people like your parents have more influence over how they're represented in Washington DC. And that is to formulate a method. And I don't have the method. I just have the, the kind of abstract concept for it, formulate a method to in some way, objectively determine how the lines are drawn Sure, for these districts such that we actually have competitive or at least significantly more competitive districts than we currently do you don't have you don't have so much because here's what happens you get the district that uh, alexandria ocasio-cortez is from right she is going to go to congress because she won the primary because her name is on the ballot as a democrat in her district and the democrat always wins her district therefore in reality, the only people within her district who she's actually representing are the hardcore, you know, as you put it, you know, the, the people who are in that future shock state who are so deeply concerned and affected through by progressive politics. That's who she represents. Now, that's a slim majority of the population of her district, guaranteed, because most people are like your parents. Most people are just trying to get by. Most people are relatively apolitical. They have inclinations, but it isn't their entire life. And what we've done by through through the gerrymandering process and by having a process where there's so many districts that are hard R's and hard D's is that we've we've determined the entire political representation of all the people who live in that district has redounded to the caucus attendees and convention delegates and primary voters of the prevailing party in those districts. Those are the people, those few people who get to decide how they're going to be represented. The rest of the population has nothing to say about it. Well, it's it's shifting, I think, where the important areas in politics are or the important districts, the important states. It's not necessarily shifting uh, the representation overall because I think even if you look at the first district of Minnesota, a large part of it is conservative, but it was represented by Tim Walls, who up until the election this year has been pretty moderate. And... So even though it was a conservative district, he was represented by a Democrat. And you even look at, you know, northern Minnesota, they kind of shift with the tides between Democrats and Republicans based on who's going to support their lifestyle. Um, and it hasn't been beholden to one party, but it could kind of change the the bright spots on the map in terms of, OK, you know, this district was heavily Democratic or this district was heavy, heavily Republican. Those districts will still exist. They're just going to shift across the map. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. So I'd be interested in hearing from Democrats who, you know, presuming we could engage in good faith, could address this notion of you know, because they're constantly talking about the importance of democracy, right? Democracy is infused. The word democracy is infused in everything. And what they mean when they say it is majority rule. You know, they have this sense that, well, we should be going because they're so confident 
that if everybody's vote was taken on every given issue that we would end up having universal health care tomorrow and you know the minimum wage would be $25 an hour and we would you know enter into some sort of socialist utopia if if only we had pure democracy and and uh, majority rule on every question i don't know that that's true <laughs> but that's what they seem to believe and they're constantly talking about the importance of democracy well if you really feel that way then how do you respond to this status quo that we just outlined at the top of this hour wherein you have you have all these gerrymandered districts whereby the the quality of person who represents everybody within that congressional district or that legislative district is determined by a very small proportionally very small oligarchy of primary voters or convention delegates and those people tend to be the hardest of the hardcore those tend to be your democratic socialists right or, you know, if you want to look at the right side of the political spectrum, they tend to be Tea Partiers, such as myself, you know, or, or otherwise deeply engaged conservative activists who have very strong feelings about the way government ought to be run. And are those feelings actually in alignment with where the the median individual working and living in that particular district is? You well, know, maybe, maybe not, but probably not to the extent that your district is a hard D or a hard R, the answer is probably not so much. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Let's go to Dan in Hopkins. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter and Brad. I'm, uh, forgive me if I'm getting off your topic here. I just was re- just tuned in and listened to Brad say about uh, where, uh, where about walls. And I think... I've been thinking about walls, and I think I am somewhat surprised that he has moved so leftward in his uh, uh, in his rhetoric in his website about what he proposes to do. But uh, maybe his true colors were never shown, or he will do whatever it takes, you know, not only to win the Democratic Party, which he did, but to become governor, thinking that he will appeal to the most people, and I think he. He somehow thinks that by saying one Minnesota, a coalition for one Minnesota, that is so vague and it, and is com- completely drowned out. Well, it inherently... Website, which is insane. Yeah, I take your point, Dan, and I appreciate the comment. Right. The, the the notion of one Minnesota, or it, and it, it echoes similar rhetoric we've heard in the past. You know, you'll, you'll hear people on the left talk about government as though it's one big happy party where we all get together and express ourselves collectively. What's missing from that style of rhetoric from that analysis is any consideration of the minority. Like what about the people who don't want to go along? What about the people who aren't being represented in your consensus? Uh, And the only answer you can honestly come up with is that they don't matter. Their views don't matter. We're going to impose whatever the 50% plus one declaration is upon those minority of folks. And there's a truly small R anti-Republican sentiment wrapped up in there. Let's talk with Nathan in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yep. Uh, I wanted to say thank you for talking about gerrymandering. I think it's really important. Um, One of the most important things that gets some of the least airtime. Um, I think in Minnesota, particularly, uh, one of the challenges with gerrymandering is that 
um, we see uh, districts so gerrymandered and safe for hard D and hard R, as you say, that um, moderates uh, find themselves dramatically underrepresented in the federal government, as you say. Um, but also the quality of the person that we send there um, is often um, because their districts aren't very diverse, the leaders that we send to Washington aren't actually very good at compromising. Correct. Because they, that's not well, and, the type of person that wins that district. And it's worse than that, Nathan, because here's the thing. Like, hypothetically, if through some sort of electoral mistake, somebody who was capable of compromise or tended towards compromise was elected in such a district they would be incentivized not to act on those instincts. Like the, the, you are kept from it when you, when you find yourself in a situation where you have to answer not to all of the constituents in a relatively balanced district, but to a very small minority of, of primary voters or convention delegates. And, you know, those are the most hardcore ideological folks, which I would include myself in that bunch you know, of hardcore ideological people. When that's who you have to answer to, you don't have the opportunity to yield any sort of territory to your fellow uh, congressional people or legislators, wherever you happen to find yourself being. And that, you, that's problematic. Would you su- suspect that if districts were uh, drawn by an independent party, that moderates might become more engaged in the primary process because they would um, feel like they had a real shot at influencing the process? Perhaps, but see, I'm less interested, as an ideologue myself, I'm less interested in moderates becoming more engaged than I am in government being functional. Because the, the problem, as I see it, isn't necessarily ideology or having a strong sense of the way things ought to be. It's being tied down to... A, a vision of how things ought to be to the point where you can't take the action that needs to be taken in the here and now to actually move forward on on essential policy choices. Like, for instance, you know, one of the things we are constantly debating here in Minnesota is roads and bridges and how to fund them. And, you know, in, in my time serving at the municipal level, this is something that I've developed a new appreciation for the extent to which that has become politicized along ideological terms to the detriment of literally everybody who lives in the state. And that that is to, I, influenced heavily, in my view, by the gerrymandered nature of districts and by the way in which redistricting determines the, the partisan makeup. And it becomes much more about who's going to be in control than how we're actually going to solve the problems that people are facing in this state. I appreciate your call as always, Nathan. Appreciate you joining the show. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. You can contribute 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go to Barry in Stillwater. Welcome to the program. Hey. Or St. Paul, oh, sorry. 
I wonder if your argument is more academic than anything about gerrymandering, because isn't the whole point of, of our government not to be involved in our lives any more than necessary? And isn't that the whole problem? And if they actually function, doesn't that mean that, by definition, they'll grow? How does that no, help? not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. Listen, what I mean by function is quite literally just that, function. Like, do... to to act in some way like in in order for government whatever you think government should do the question of what the the size and scope and role of government properly ought to be is separate from like once you solve that once you get to whatever your answer is to that question whatever's left over whatever you whittle government down to still needs to function right like it still needs to do whatever it is that you've called upon it to do and in order to do that, there needs to be the capacity for those who are entrusted w- with the various tasks, whether it's legislating or uh, you know actually executing the day-to-day operations of a particular um, agency or whatever the case may be, they need to be capable of doing their jobs. And in many cases, right now, particularly at the state and federal level, they're not. And it's it's because, to some degree, because of the hyper- politicization of literally everything and the fact that everything even how and whether we fund our roads and bridges becomes a a, a partisan brinksmanship contest rather than in good faith effort to actually figure out how to do it isn't that a function more of how, how much lobbying people in politics can get you something like like the reason why roads and bridges are so hard to get is because unions have their feet or their hands and everything. Let's be honest here. If we didn't have have you know prevailing wages, it'd be a lot cheaper to do what we do in Minnesota. It's same thing with a whole bunch of other stuff. That's why people care about politics is because they can get something from it. If they can get something from it, then why would they care? No, look, I'm with you in terms of the more power that government has, the more there is to buy, the more there is to purchase in terms of, you know, campaign contributions and lobbying and what have you. And and that goes to the question of what should government's role and the scope of government be. But what I'm suggesting is that even once you account for that, when you ha- when you get to the conclusion of whatever deliberation you're having along those lines, you still come to a point where at some point, the rubber needs to meet the road, metaphorically, and you need to have a, a context, a scenario wherein that politically can occur. And it seems like often it's not the case. Just look at every every session we have in the Minnesota legislature here in this state. How does it always end? It always ends with everything comes down to the last minute. Nothing's been decided. We're going to go into a special session. Everything's being negotiated behind closed doors. The public shut out. There's no input. And that, that is all a function of the, the partisan brinksmanship because everybody's campaigning for the next election. They're not focused on actually doing the job that they were elected to go there and do. They're campaigning for the next election. I believe, and I don't have the full answer here, but I believe that there are systemic changes that could be made to how the institutions work, which would go a long way towards addressing that and fixing that. And I think one of those things would be addressing gerrymandering. I think you're wrong. I think it's chicken and egg thing. I I think that the the fun, why gerrymandering happened is because the control that government has, and and that's why people care 
so much about where these districts are drawn and the power they have. And if they didn't have to care about that, gerrymandering wouldn't exist. I think it's a chicken and egg thing. It's an an interesting perspective. Isn't gerrymandering in the Constitution? As in the Congress is allowed to make its districts and reapportion them? The several states. Yes. I mean, I I appreciate your thoughts, Barry. and, And to Brad's point, this is not a new problem. Like gerrymandering, the term emerged over a hundred years ago. I mean, it's something that has been a, a persistent thorn in the side of our process for many, many decades. It's, it's been a part of our, our culture. And the what I'm getting after is more of the effect of that gerrymandering has upon the capacity of government to function rather than the the actual role and sizes uh, to me they're two separate considerations well that that is the consideration though is we can talk about gerrymandering like i support the idea of it you know the algorithmic redistricting that like yeah. 538 has represented before mm-hmm. and that's that's well and good but the next question to ask then is will it work will it result in some not by itself. Qu- qualitatively better government. Or, you know, you could look at are bills simpler? Are they more moderate? Are right. they easier to read? Or will there be more representative government just by fixing gerrymandering alone? I doubt it. No, it's not going to work by itself. And that's a, a solid point that needs to be made is that this is, this is one, I think it's an important pressure point, but it is only one pressure point. Yeah, I mean, like California, I think is doing algorithmic redistricting of some sort. And so there should be a study there mm-hmm. uh, by an institution that looks at it and says, okay, this is how the legislative process has changed since we ended gerrymandering. To Barry's metaphor of the chicken and the egg, I do think, or I suspect, that if you applied pressure to this to this point of gerrymandering, it could potentially result in a, a political dynamic whereby you could set the stage for other necessary reforms because if you have a a more and I don't like the I don't like using the term moderate here as Nathan did for Minneapolis because I really don't think it's about being moderate versus being conservative or liberal I think it's about being serious versus being a lunatic right and look I say this as an activist I say this as one of those quote lunatic unquote activists from the Tea Party, who made all the trouble back in 2008, 2010, and and so forth, the, there's an ex- there's a time and a place for the hardcore ideological rhetoric and proverbial Bible thumping or Constitution thumping. There's a time and a place for that, and then there's a time to get serious about making policy and doing what you were elected to go to St. Paul or Washington D.C. to do. And you, there needs to be a political context in which people are able to function and, and do the job of governing. And currently, in so many cases, that's obviously not the case. You, you have scenarios where people have inclinations. And look, I know this. I can't disclose it because I have to you know, maintain confidences. But I have had conversations with people who you would know who are elected and have articulated this very problem that they find themselves in where they 
know what ought to happen, right? And they, and they would love to be able to pursue it, but they are constrained by political realities that are out of sync with the common sense, rational course of action on policy. That is a problem. And what I'm suggesting is that we ought to do certain things in order to solve that. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. glad we have time to get to this story at the Star Tribune. This one is quite a head-scratcher, and uh, that's that's putting it lightly. This is actually pretty infuriating. There's a report on the Star Tribune regarding new information in the Mohammed Noor case. Mohammed Noor, as you no doubt recall, was the Minneapolis police officer. He's not a police officer anymore, but he was the police officer who fired upon and killed Justine Damond. And there have been a lot of questions, you know, at the time of the shooting, because this happened when we were on the air. At the time of the shooting, I and many others speculated that Muhammad Noor may have been on the force less because of his competence and his training and his merits and more because of his minority status. And these new revelations seem to lend credence to that theory. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 to squeeze in a comment before the end of the program tonight. Again, from the Star Tribune, former Minneapolis police officer Mohammed Noor concerned psychiatrists and training officers about his fitness for duty long before he fatally shot Justine Damon. New court records show. Revelations about Noor's past were introduced by Hennepin County prosecutors on Wednesday in response to a motion by defense attorneys to dismiss the third-degree murder and manslaughter charges filed against him in Damon's death. Noor was flagged by two psychiatrists during the pre-hiring evaluation in early 2015 after he exhibited an inability to handle the stress of regular police work and unwillingness to deal with people, according to the records. The report went on to say that Noor was more likely than other police candidates to become impatient with others over minor infractions, have trouble getting along with others, to be more demanding and have a limited social support network. They showed he, quote, reported disliking people and being around them, unquote. That, isn't that always a character? Isn't that a bullet point on the job posting for Minneapolis police officer? Do you dislike people and not enjoy being around them? Come be part of the force here at the Minneapolis Police Department. Like, are you? How is this not an immediate disqualifier? He couldn't even lie to say that he was. <laughs> I mean, uh, this is, and that's not even the worst. That's not even the. That's the least mind-boggling and infuriating aspect of this report. And yet, continuing at the Star Tribune. Since Noor exhibited no signs of a major mental illness, it's nice to know that the bar is set so high. Well, he doesn't have any signs of a major mental illness. Like, he isn't coming in here with multiple personality disorder. He's got a pulse, basically. So I guess we can hire him on as a cop. None of these other red flags matter. Since Noor exhibited no signs of a major mental illness, chemical dependence, or personality disorder, he was deemed 
psychologically or psychiatrically fit to work as a cadet police officer for the Minneapolis Police Department, the filing said. Given the inconsistencies in the report, a civilian human resources employee followed up with the psychiatrist two weeks later seeking clarification. The psychiatrist, one Dr. Thomas Gratzer, stood by his recommendation. Michael Quinn, a former Minneapolis detective turned consultant, said that any of those findings should have raised red flags during the hiring process. You think? I, you've got to have a sense of what's right and what's wrong, said Quinn, who frequently testifies in court as an expert on police conduct. You've also got to communicate with people and have some confidence and be able to deal with stress situations. Yeah, you, you would think so. Nor was charged in Mar- And then it goes on to give an account of what we already know. Um, and, then, and then it gets back into other revelations about Nor. Elsewhere in the filings. One training officer noted in a report that on Noor's third to last training shift in the spring of 2016, he at times didn't want to take calls, instead driving in circles when he could have assigned himself to them. The calls were for simple matters, such as a road hazard or a suspicious vehicle where the caller was unsure of whether the car was occupied. In another instance, an officer noted that Noor told a 911 caller that he would follow up on a report of a possible burglar but never did. The field training officer later said that it bothered her that Nor never bothered to check the area because police are bound to do our due diligence on this job. The documents also outlined the events leading up to the shooting, saying that Nor had gone from his off-duty job of working seven hours of security at Wells Fargo branch to his shift, which went from 4.15 p.m. to 2.15 a.m. the following morning. So on top of being you know, mentally incompetent, and unattuned for the job, he was also exhausted working two jobs. Prosecutors said the shift included a report of a woman with dementia wandering at the area of 50th and Xerxes. An hour and a half later, Damon would call for 911 from the same location to report a woman in distress, and we know what happened after that. Prosecutors said there's no evidence that Norris saw Damon or tried to warn his partner that he'd drawn his gun and was preparing to fire, nor, uh, they continued, did he attempt to tell anyone to stand back, show their hands, or identify themselves. Um, really t- roughly two months before the shooting, Nor put a gun to the head of a motorist pulled over for a minor traffic stop, according to the prosecution filing. This is astounding. Nor stopped his squad on 24th Street west of Nicollet Avenue and got out with his gun pulled and pointed downward, the court documents read, citing squad car video. When the defendant approached the driver's side of the stopped car, the first thing he did was point his gun at the driver's head. You know what the guy did? He flicked a bicyclist off. And so Nor pointed a gun at his head. This guy should have been fired four times over before he shot an innocent woman. Why didn't that happen? We deserve answers. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.